Welcome to another episode of the Biz Law Series with business lawyer Michael Palermo here on Biz Radio US. Good day, sir. Nice to see you, Matt. Good to have you on as always. And before we get into our topic of top five contracts a business should consider putting in place, I want to remind people that you have a whole series of these episodes that you've done. And if you don't catch them in rotation on Biz Radio, you can always check out the podcast. There's a couple of ways to do that. You can go to bizradio.us, click on the podcast tab and scroll down to find Michael's series. Or you can go to Michael's website. Um, I'll let you give out the website so I don't mess it up. The website is palermolaw.com, and then up at the top uh, banner there, you'll see. You can click and read my blog posts, or you can click and listen to the radio show broadcasts. There you go. And just binge it all in one place. <laughs> that's what I would do. <laughs> that's that's what I would recommend. And if you hit the little home icon when we're talking, that's the page it's going to take you to on Michael's website. So, uh, all right, we got that all covered. Let's talk about the top five contracts that a business may consider putting in place. What are the top five most essential contracts that businesses should consider having in place in order to protect their interests and ensure smooth operations? I'm going to give you a list, but uh, really every, almost every engagement that business enters into is a contract from starting the business to selling the business. But the most common ones are going to be what I like to call sale of goods or manufacturing contracts. There's finance agreements and investor agreements if your business has investors. Uh, I, call, I call this next one IP assignments or purchase of IP. Intellectual property, should, you should always have some writing in place regarding intellectual property. Uh, commercial leases or the purchase of commercial property. And then the last one might be a franchise agreement. Those are get, getting a lot more popular. Yeah, and I know that there's there's more than that too. We probably could have done a top 10, um, but for brevity's sake, we're, we're doing top five. Um, can you elaborate more on the key elements and clauses that should be included in a business partnership agreement to, you know, cause that, that's one of those things that we've talked about in other series, um, other episodes in the series, we've talked about that, but elaborating on key elements and clauses, um, that safeguard the rights and responsibilities of all parties involved transactionally or ownership. Yeah. When we talk about a business, we're usually talking about what's called bylaws or an operating agreement, but that's actually a contract amongst the owners of the business. When somebody is looking at uh, bylaws, an operating agreement, or an investor agreement, the main thing to keep in mind is sort of an overarching theme is who can do what, who's allowed to do what, and who can't do what. So when you talk about bylaws or an operating agreement, I like to define who can make decisions about the business, who can hire and fire, who can spend money, who's not allowed to hire and fire, who can't spend money, who can write checks, who can you know sign a contract for a million-dollar purchase order. So when you talk about a business partnership agreement, whether bylaws or operating agreement, sort of use that lens when looking at those agreements. There's, there's two lenses. One is who can do what, who can't do what, and the second one is where does the money go? All right, shifting gears a little bit, for businesses that frequently engage in intellectual property creation, what are the critical components of contracts for intellectual property licensing or, or transfer of intellectual property? When we talk about intellectual property, we think copyright. And um, you know people sort of hear words but don't think about them. The word copyright literally means who has the right to copy some sort of creative invention, whether it's a book, whether it's a website, whether it's a computer program that you've you need designed specifically for your business. So when you're talking about intellectual property or IP contracts, which I always recommend to have in place when you're contracting for these sorts of services, you really need to figure out who owns that product. So somebody might 
design a website but not give ownership of the web of the design of the website to the person they design it for which would be a real big mistake if you have to fire that person and bring someone new in to mm. remodel the website so when you talk about intellectual property you really want to focus on not just the money that's trading hands but who is going to own the final product and who will be allowed to copy copyright who will be allowed to copy the final product meaning if you have somebody create a specialized computer program from you Will that person be allowed to copy it and sell it to other people, or are you the only person that can use it? You know, and I've I've seen that come into play from the radio side of things, where there are some uh, there are some radio outfits that if they produce an ad for a company, they will not allow that ad to be used on other platforms and everything. Yeah. So you know, well, just I, things that people I mean, don't think about. You know, because I've had people say, "I don't understand. I paid for it. Why can't I use it?" <laughs> and like, should have looked at the terms of the contract. Yeah, or you, another way to look at it is to you can charge them a little more if they want to use it on other radio shows. Right. But when they're when they're paying you to create the ad, they're you know paying the overhead for your facility, actors' times, creation time, you know, versus just being able to take a, a cassette recorder over to the next radio station and use that over and over, and you don't make any money off that. So you always wanted to find who can use it and how they can use it. Exactly. All right, uh, moving over into the customer side of contracts, how can a well-drafted customer contract or service agreement um, help mitigate potential disputes and legal challenges for a business? I can't say this enough. Scope of work and get paid. Uh, have a really good scope of work, including timelines or milestones for completion, and then figure out how, e e either as the producer, if, how you're getting paid, or the customer, if you're the customer, how are you going to pay them? And I don't mean how, like credit card or cash. I mean, if, if, if this is a six-month project, will it be paid monthly in installments? Will it be paid percentage of completion? Is there money that's given up front for purchase of materials? But any, any contract for a service agreement, uh, you know, whether it's legal services, whether it's putting a deck on the back of your house, really, really strong scope of work. So that if I go in front of a judge to enforce it or to def defend it, I can point, you know, here, ju judge, here's 15 things on this uh, scope of work, and here's a check mark next to them. They were all completed. My client deserves to get paid versus, you know, just build a deck. What does that mean? You, mm -hmm. you have to define what the deck's made of, how big it's going to be, where it's going to be attached, what the foundation looks like. And then also on the construction side, you know, what kind of protections do you have in there for spikes <laughs> in costs? Yeah, I, uh, I've had a couple clients over the years get, get stuck with um, – fixed price contracts that weren't signed until six or eight months after they proposed them. And they didn't have anything in there to adjust for materials increases. Yeah. I, I know one, one was copper. One was, um, might've just been straight up lumber, but it was during COVID when everything was going, oh, going just, haywire. Yeah. Having just completed a home little interior uh, construction project, I can tell you that lumber is a lot more expensive than the last time I did that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was I'll only bet. a couple of years ago. Yeah. Um, all right. So, now, this is going to seem like the biggest softball question. Actually, I'm going to do it in two parts, um, right. but it's a very important question for a lot of businesses, and that is understanding when is the right time for a business to seek out the assistance of a lawyer to draft or review contracts. And then the second part of that is what are some of the potential risks of using generic or template agreements? Uh, first part is usually when I meet with new clients or even older clients that want a new project, I always try to figure out if it's something I can help them with before I, you know, start start the clock and billing them. And a lot of businesses don't necessarily need what they think they need, but you know, 
call me early on when you first think you may need this type of contract or a redraft of a contract. Better to have it before you hand it to somebody rather than hand it to somebody and have it be garbage and have to defend it in court or just walk away from a, a project or a payment. So it's never too early to call call me to work on drafting contracts. And if it's, you know, I'm not going to spend $5,000 drafting a contract for somebody who's selling nickel candies. You're not, it's just <laughs> That's not a lot feasible. of nickel candy. <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's not economically feasible. There's a cost benefit. But somebody whose business routinely bills you know, five, six, seven, eight thousand, or who does manufacturing of custom goods? You want to get in there before you even have the client when you're first setting up the business. And the second part: what are the potential risks of using generic or template agreements? Because it seems like a Google search will give you a hundred websites with templates. Yeah, I'll, I'll preface this by saying I've made a lot of money off of contracts that people have downloaded off the internet. <laughs> so just keep it one one. One case, actually, my fee got up around $70,000 over the course of three years. So keep that in mind when you're doing your internet search. Uh, the risks are, I'm not going to say the risks. I'm going to tell you how I operate, and you can decide if you want to go to the internet instead. I sit down with the client. I learn their business. I learn what their concerns are, what their needs are from a contract, and then I custom draft more or less. There's a lot of um, standardized language, but more or less you'll get a customized pro uh, product that's fitted to your business and that you can call me up and ask me questions about, you know, a year, two years later, and we can modify the contract if we have to. Um, the stuff from the internet, I, I don't even look at it. If somebody comes to me and says, can you look at this? I, I don't, I, I literally just won't do it. They're, they're, they can take that risk if they want, but I'm not going to sign on to it. All right. What is the best way for people to get in touch with you and, and follow up on any of these, um, any of these topics that we've talked about today or in previous episodes? <laughs> Email is always the best, palermo at palermolaw.com. All right, Michael, as always, thank you for taking your time and experience to sharing it with the listeners on Biz Radio. You're welcome, guy.